Our second reading this morning comes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 55, beginning with verse 1. Let us listen for and hear God's holy word. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you that have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen so that you may live. I will make, I will make with you an everlasting covenant, a steadfast for my steadfast, for sure for love, sure love for David. See, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. See, you shall call nations that you do not know, and nations that do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous their their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord, that he may have mercy on them, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are, my, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May your good news come, O Lord, not only in the words spoken, but in and through the power of your Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Amen. Once upon a time, the owner of a vineyard planted fruit trees. There were apple trees and pear trees and grapevines and even a fig tree. The grapes and the apples and the pears were abundant But the fig tree never produced a single fig. The owner finally got tired of waiting and insisted that the tree be chopped down and thrown out so that something useful could be planted in its place. Once upon a time, a group of devout religious people went to the holy city, to the temple, to offer sacrifices to their God. They intended no harm to anyone. They only wanted to do what was right, according to the customs of their religion. But the military soldiers and the government officials decided to teach everyone a lesson about who held real power. The worshipers were slaughtered as they stood at the altar, their blood pouring out onto the floor along with that of the animals that they had just sacrificed. Once upon a time, there was a tower built into a massive outer wall that protected an ancient city. It was an enormous tower marking a populated urban area. But something went wrong one day. The foundation shifted, the wall buckled, the supporting beams gave way, and the tower collapsed. Eighteen people were killed, passers-by who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. 
Once upon a time, on the streets of New York and Washington, a man targeted the homeless population with a loaded gun, shooting five while they slept. Before he was stopped, two were dead and three more critically injured. Once upon a time, one of the world's nuclear powers dropped a missile on a maternity hospital in a besieged city. Amid the ruins, a pregnant woman was carried on a stretcher, clutching her belly as splintered trees and piles of rubble smoked all around her. Hours later, both mother and baby were dead from the wounds they sustained in the explosion. Once upon a time, a van was struck head-on by a pickup truck on a dark two-lane highway out in the middle of nowhere. When emergency personnel arrived on the scene, they found both vehicles on fire and nine dead, seven of whom from a golf team from a small Christian college. Once upon a time, the stock market began to drift downward, wiping out the retirement fund that an elderly couple had spent a lifetime saving. Once upon a time, a young family drove home to find their house engulfed in flames and all their possessions and all that they had destroyed. So tell us, Jesus, why did these things happen? Why did these people die? Why did they lose everything and suffer? And Jesus said, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than any other Galileans? Or those 18 who were killed when when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? It's called retribution theology. The idea that God uncompromisingly and unfailingly punishes the wicked for their evil deeds and rewards the righteous with long life and prosperity. It's called retribution theology, and it's really bad theology. It's bad, but it tends to be the way that we think. And that's bad because God does not operate that way. It's a tempting explanation, though. It answers the question of why bad things happen to good people. It says, well, they don't. This bad theology says that bad things only happen to bad people. If something goes horribly wrong in your life, there must be some awful transgression, some hidden sin that God is paying you back for. Conversely, if something goes well in your life, If you win the lottery, or you get accepted to your first choice college, or find a parking space in the front row, then buddy, you must be living right. But it doesn't work that way. As Mark Twain put it, heaven goes by favor. If it went by merit, you would stay out and your dog would get in. As Jesus tells us elsewhere, God is not an eye-for-an-eye accountant. God does not operate on the basis of moral arithmetic. God operates on the basis of grace, 
Once upon a time, Jesus says, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, see here, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still there is nothing. Cut it down. It's just taking up space. The gardener replied, sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. Give it one more chance. One more year. One more chance. One more undeserved opportunity. Grace. And grace is what Isaiah is talking about as well. Everyone who thirsts, come to the water. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. You who have nothing good to show for yourselves, you who have no chance of earning your way out of the mess that you're in, you who are hopeless, come. 2,500 years ago, Isaiah's congregation knew something about hopelessness. This passage appears near the end of the book, and by this point in the story, the people are exhausted. They've faced enemies, lived most of that time in exile. They were filled with desperation and surrounded by death. An awful lot of Isaiah sounds an awful lot like retribution theology suggesting that all of Israel's suffering is due to their own sin. If, they, if it hadn't been for that, they wouldn't have been in exile, in this literal God-forsaken wilderness. But God does not operate that way. God operates on the basis of, doesn't operate on the basis of what we do and what we deserve. God operates on the basis of grace. Let them return to the Lord, that the Lord may have mercy on them, and to our God, who will abundantly pardon. The big fancy theological term is repentance, which literally means to turn around, to return. Let them turn around. Let them return to the Lord. Even in the face of their sinfulness, God invites the Israelites to turn around, to return to abundant life, to the rich feast, to a drink of cool water in the hot, dry, arid wilderness. Oh God, you are my God, the psalmist cries. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You can almost picture that landscape, can't you? I've been to the Middle East, to Egypt, to the Valley of the King on a 125-degree day. But even without having visited that desert, I understand excruciatingly, excruciatingly hot and dry. And I also understand thirst, because I've been there in my life, and I know that you have too. But sometimes it's hard for us to acknowledge our thirst, our need, our yearning for God. More often than not, we try to satisfy that yearning with inadequate substitutes, with prestigious titles, 
and weighty accomplishments and high-class ideologies and powerful friends and shiny stuff. Fred Craddock tells a story about visiting a woman in his congregation who was in the hospital waiting for surgery. I went to see her beforehand, and the surgery was going to be major, he said. I walked into her room. She was a nervous wreck, and she started crying. She wanted me to pray for her, which I did. By her bed there was a stack of books and magazines. True Love, Us, Mirror, Soap Opera Digest, Hollywood Today. She had a stack of them there, and she was just a wreck. Craddock continues, it occurred to me there's not a drop in that whole stack to help her through her experience. She had no place to dip down into a reservoir and come up with anything, a word, a phrase, a thought, an idea, a memory, a person. Just empty. We cannot find God unless we know we need God. That's how Thomas Burton put it. We cannot find God unless we know we need God. And I think that's what Lent is all about about repentance, about turning around, about returning, about recognizing again that we need God, learning to say that I'm thirsty. It's not easy, especially for good church folk like us. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey recalls growing up in a Dutch Reformed congregation in Michigan. My own church tended towards perfectionism, he writes. On Sundays, our well-scrubbed families emerged from their cars smiling, even though, as we later found out, they had been fighting all week long. The hard lesson, Yancey writes, was not dressing up and being good for God, but an honest acknowledgement of our need, our emptiness, our thirst. And if thirst is our problem, then grace is our answer. Everyone who thirsts, come to the water. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. I was reminded this week of a film that a friend in seminary made me watch when she learned that I had not seen it. She got a group of us together one night at the beginning of Lent, my first year in seminary, and we watched Chocolate, the movie that came out in 2000. It's a story about Vianne Rocher, a woman who comes to a small, uptight, excessively religious French village to start a new life for her and her daughter. She opens a shop, a chocolate shop, just as the Lenten fast begins. And as far as the town people are concerned, that makes her the devil incarnate, tempting them with all the goodies that they had given up for Lent. But in the course of the story, Vienne teaches them something about grace, about turning rules and self-righteousness into joy and abundance. In the end, even the town priest comes around. In his Easter sermon, he says, I think we can't go around measuring our goodness by what we don't do, 
by what we deny ourselves, by what we resist, and who we exclude. I think we've got to measure goodness by what we embrace, what we create, and who we include. And that's exactly God's word for us on this third Sunday of Lent. This third Sunday in the middle of our wilderness journey to the cross. So let us acknowledge our thirst. Let us acknowledge our thirst and let us repent and turn around and return to God. You who thirst, come to the waters. And you that have no money, come, buy, and eat. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Listen so that you may live. Amen.